0: in short pants who run around bullying MPs, muzzling scientists, and, and harassing civil servants, report to one boss. Oh, Isn't it time to have accountability out of PMO? You great. Uh, the Honorable Minister of Foreign Affairs on the point of order. You know, Mr. Speaker, I have to rise and respond to the member for Saanich Gulf Islands. Uh, she made comments with respect to young boys in short pants. Uh, we have a lot of young, talented women
1: also working in the Prime Minister's office, and I would ask her to withdraw her sexist comments. Hello, and welcome to episode seven of the Boys in Short Pants, the eighth episode.
0: Every time, that never gets old, doesn't it? Never gets old.
1: Uh, this week, uh, we've, we've got a pretty busy lineup for you. And as you may have garnered from uh, the, the different theme song this week, we want to kind of address the name. Uh, so from the beginning, I think we we sort of expected this day would come, that we would get some, <laughs> some pushback on the name.
0: I think about two minutes after uh, the name was originally pitched, we started to discuss whether or not Boys in Short Pants was, in fact, uh, the right yeah. way to go with it. And, and what it really came down to
1: was... Um, well, there's the aesthetic consideration that the kids in short pants Which or some other variation just, just sounds like garbage, frankly.
0: Yeah. yeah, so to back up here, the uh, the criticism we've received is that the boys in short pants term is exclusive if we're using it to refer to sort of ministerial and prime minister's office staffers. Right, and that it, it discourages women
1: from getting involved in politics or says it makes a claim that women aren't or shouldn't be
0: yeah which is in fact roughly the exchange that uh okay. baird and elizabeth may had in that opening clip right um but one of our main reasons in uh going ahead with the name anyways well th- there's a couple uh first and foremost the term boys is also being used in this context to refer specifically to us yeah we are um, both dudes If you are, haven't <laughs> yeah. so. the uh the second one is that It's a little weird to use a more gender neutral sort of slur or pejorative in that the boys in short pants here is being used as sort of a patronizing term to refer unflatteringly to the uh, often young staffers that work in these offices. Um, So it's sort of.
1: Equal opportunity slurs are
0: kind of like... Yeah, it's yeah. sort of sort of bizarre. Yeah. And the last one I would say is that in each of our intros, we have, and basically every time uh, the term has been used in the House of Commons, there's controversy around it on exactly this topic. Yeah. And so our intro, or our normal intro, acknowledges that, and it's literally uh, Wayne Easter correcting himself, saying that it's not just the boys, it's the boys, the men, and women. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and, and like to, to further clarify like we we work with a lot of women in various you know political and parapolitical realms like they are super good at their jobs uh, i had i think i've only ever worked for women with one exception i've only ever worked for for women candidates um, yeah and often under a woman campaign manager etc so it's like
0: yeah. Yeah, and the uh, the last point i would make is also that the term was originally coined according to the cbc by uh, a former uh, harper staffer keith beardsley and it was corn uh, it was coined as the boys in short pants yeah and so that's that's keeping true to sort of its origins as well
1: yeah besides and as i say as we said at the beginning it, it, kids in short pants would have made it sound like we're 12 years old yeah which, uh, we come, are not 12
0: years old so. it, it, and yeah it comes across as a little creepier than boys in short pants, which bit, is, eh? admittedly has a little bit of a creepy ring to it anyways but yeah, here it, we are
1: yeah baird says it a little weird. Um, so we have a moderately-sized announcement to make uh, this week.
0: Yeah, we've been uh, picked up and will be featured on uh, looneypolitics.com, which is a Canadian uh, independent news outlet. And they feature uh, news and they aggregate news and analysis from all over the web, as well as feature some of their own reporting. Uh, I think one of their uh, reporters or one of their uh, individuals that works for them is Dale Smith, uh, who's a press, uh, press gallery reporter. And they have a couple of uh, well-known columnists that reader or listeners of the show might be familiar with. Uh, such as Warren Kinsella and J.J. McCullough are the two uh, names that really jump out at me there.
1: As far as content and the podcast goes, though, everything stays the same. Uh, We're going to stay irreverent. uh, Absolutely. Same course. It'll be good. so take us into, what we are going to talk about next to 10? We've got a lot on our plate this week.
0: I think my favorite uh, news of the week. This got a little bit of coverage, but uh, can always use some more because perhaps of how hilarious some of the stories you're, you're are. You're good friends. Uh, yeah, so my little disclosure here is that I've previously uh, interned for the Canadian Tax Force Federation.
1: Yeah, great organization. Uh,
0: he's, he says that without malice. Um, but our next uh, next segment is about the Teddy Awards. So the Teddy Awards are given out every year for uh, perhaps the most atrocious examples of government waste across Canada. And they give out one uh, award for each level of government. So there's a municipal one, a provincial one, and a federal one. Which one do you want to do first?
1: Let's uh, start from the bottom and work our way up, Drake style.
0: start from the bottom, now we're here. So the Municipal Teddy Award uh, is a 93-year-old bridge titled the Blue Bridge uh which was estimated at uh, 63 million dollars to replace um today the problems have ballooned and the delays have increased 42 million dollars so that are they're at 105 million Uh, With final completion anticipated in mid-2018, three full years behind schedule. Where is that? It's in Victoria, BC. Oh, Victoria, okay. I uh, actually had it pointed out to me when I was in Victoria earlier this year, and uh, everyone in town seems to be aware of how much of a blight on the municipality this is.
1: That reminds me of, in Saskatoon, uh, the city of Bridges, uh, we... For a long time, at least, uh, they, they were demolishing one of the older ones, and there was just, like, one lone span of it just, like, in the middle of the river, and it looked ridiculous, but uh, good times.
0: Fort McMurray had a similar uh, bridge-related issue on its municipal books for a while. There, At one point, they wanted to create... I can't remember the actual price. It was probably something like $25 million well, footbridge connecting two parks that no one really walked between, and it saved about 10 minutes of walking time if you were to walk around it. it absolutely no sense. Bridge seemed to be, like... The Quagmire Municipal Governments everywhere. Um, other municipal nominees include the uh, the City of Montreal for spending $3.5 million to install 27 granite tree stumps in the Mo- Mount Royal Park.
1: Why am I surprised that Montreal's on this list?
0: Why would you install granite tree stumps when you can just, you know, install trees? Ah, it's...
1: Uh I mean, did they did this include removing the, the post box, too, or...?
0: <laughs> no, that, that wasn't factored in. <laughs> so the provincial winner was uh, Ontario's Electric Vehicle Incentive Program. You might have heard of this one. It made the news a couple times. And it was rewarding people. It was subsidies for rewarding people uh, for buying electrical vehicles. Uh, but it also went so high as to cover Tesla Model S's.
1: Well, and- electric vehicles to begin with are, like, quite expensive. Uh, like, for the most part. Your average, like, I know the Nissan Leaf is, like, not really, like insanely expensive but yeah like teslas are
0: i, I mean see. yeah but teslas aren't purchased really as a like even even to throw out the idea of or to uh not dispute the green subsidies here and now because this isn't the time for it um but to start giving subsidies to 90 to hundred thousand dollar vehicles seems a little questionable particularly sports cars
1: yeah not the best use not, not gonna defend that one no, I mean actually, I have, I can the Ontario Liberals' like environmental and anti-poverty policies in general. I find like atrociously bad, um, but I've I've already ranted about this in the past.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We we hear you rant about this all the time. This is fair. <laughs> uh, so the last one is the Fetty tederal I'm sorry. <laughs> Federal Teddy Award winner You could call it the Feddy. The Feddy, Yeah, great term I hope to pick that up Uh, Which is this Canadian revenue agency Spending uh, almost Or over half a million dollars In moving expenses On one employee To move 200 kilometers
1: That sounds high Uh,
0: I mean, I know moving expenses
1: So far have been A kind of bugbear Of this government But
0: uh, Well, this one is not The government's fault per se It's it's just the, the Department's policies uh, so 340,000 of the payment was for price protection on the sale of a home, and uh, almost uh, 174 realtor fees. Oh wow! So it would be it was calculated at uh, enough to cover a 3.4 million dollar house. Wow! So some federal bureaucrat is uh, very, very so yeah grade. guys
1: uh, jobs in the CRA uh, it's, it's a great. Uh Great place to work. One of my... (laughs)
0: Absolutely. Look into it. Now hiring. Um, One of my favorite Teddy Award winners was from last year and uh, really bears mentioning in case anyone missed this. This was called the Poop Palace. (laughs) The Poop Palace. (laughs) Let me just read you the excerpt. The city of Calgary spent an extra quarter million dollars on a project to embed LED lights on its new forest lawn lift station. Uh, that changed color depending on how fast the station is pumping wastewater. Opened in 2015, the new list station provided proved immediately controversial with residents dubbing it the Poop Palace. Hmm. So they put fancy Christmas lights. That
1: show how fast it's working. That
0: show how fast.
1: I feel like it's information not everybody needs. You
0: know? That show how many people are flushing their toilet at any given moment. Huh. That seems entirely unnecessary. I mean, it's kind of cool, but
1: like once again maybe there was an easier way to do that
0: even though that's a little old I want to nominate this sort of post posthumously how do you post, posthumously posthumously uh, perhaps for next year's this is a story I came across when I was working in government and it was about uh, the government's unf- the federal government's unfortunate relationship with a uh, with a bulldozer and so there was a crime committed uh, by an individual with a bulldozer. He ran it into a police station and set it on fire. This was in 2004. Okay. Uh, The bulldozer, which was a federal government bulldozer, was seized by police. And then the whole thing went to court. And the court ordered the bulldozer destroyed. Except, kind of putting down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, sorry, Bessie. <laughs> like, He's my dog. <laughs> like, yeah, like a dog that attacks someone, right? It's like the pit bull of bulldozers. Yeah, an old yeller. And so the only problem with oh, this... Oh, God, it
1: probably was yellow, too.
0: <laughs> <that> was. <laughs> the only problem was this, was that Public Works had sold the bulldozer, so they couldn't comply with the court order. So what they did was they had to go track down the guy they sold the bulldozer to. This guy had upgraded the bulldozer, like out, put something like $10,000 in the bulldozer and didn't want to sell it back to the government. And so he eventually demanded um, $65,000 and they had originally sold it to him for $5,000-ish. And so they bought it back from him to put it down and destroy it. I think this came out in a parliamentary question. Uh, that as the liberals that the Liberals had submitted, asking the government whether they'd ever purchased something that they'd ever sold, like rebought oh. anything that they'd ever sold. And this is how this story came out.
1: Actually, you know what? Do we want to talk a little bit about parliamentary questions?
0: We could certainly talk about Because That's that. like
1: a really interesting piece of work as to how opposition works that I think people have no insights on them. because it's not really it's not really the media don't really cover it because they have their own process for getting information, usually through the Access Information Act or just like well placed sources. But opposition has a mechanism through like parliamentary means to get a hold of embarrassing information uh, that can really help them out politically.
0: Yeah, so parliamentary questions are a mechanism uh, that opposition members have, and what it is is effectively government members too. I think government yeah, government gov- member uh, government members do. And the instances in which government members do, it's to find out information on their writings. Right. It's just to compel uh, bureaucrats to tell them how much spending from, say, DFO was yeah. given to That's St. Department John's. the Department of Fisheries
1: and Oceans for the un- uninitiated. Absolutely.
0: Um, so in these questions, they're usually process-based. Yeah. Uh, they'll ask about costs or whether uh, some ask for um, all the titles of briefing notes. And they're used to follow up on later. But they're sort of like an advanced access to information uh, process for members of the opposite, or members, M- MPs, really. Yeah.
1: It's usually used by members of the opposition to embarrass. Like Etienne said, government members can use it. But it's, yeah, it's, it's a privilege that's given to all MPs to basically. Do their job in holding the government accountable by giving them the power to ask the government to answer like any detailed written question, basically.
0: Yeah. So in this instance, um, where where they differ from access information requests is access information requests compel documents, right? Uh, parliamentary questions don't. They compel responses. Yeah. Uh, so the government has to respond within. Uh, 60 sitting days or some some arbitrary deadline in uh, legislation otherwise if they don't respond they are called to committee to defend the minister is called to committee to, to defend their department as to why they can't respond which rarely rarely happens um but the government usually it's tasked to unless it's a very politically sensitive topic um usually the government tasks it to the parliamentary affairs division of a department yeah and from there it's delegated down to the proper yeah. like people yeah Um, And it comes back with a response that will say, often there's tables and charts involved saying like, we spent this much in this postal code, this much in this postal code, this much in this one. Some responses say we could not respond to it in the time frame. Your question was too complex. Yeah. Uh, Similar to uh, the access information process will sometimes come back with that response. Um, A lot of it is for costing and to get figures. Um, Perhaps the most interesting series of parliamentary questions I ever heard of or I ha- ever had the, uh, the luxury of going over while I was in government, was one MP, uh, one opposition MP, had asked a series of elaborate uh, costing questions of everyone in government, right? And at the end of every parliamentary question, off or at the end of many parliamentary questions, there'll be a costing, an estimate of how much time and money was spent to complete the parliamentary question. So in this particular instance, the Liberal MP asked for this complex one, and it came out with a costing. Another conservative MP asked for a costing of his question <laughs> so that he could try and embarrass him on like waste of government resources from outside of government. That's so good. And then the Liberal MP shot back with a question <laughs> regarding the conservative MP's costing, which was like pretty low because the figure was already there. It was like down to like, new, yeah. down to like down to like two hundred dollars. <laughs> You're getting really I,
1: good at it at that point.
0: It was just this amusing process, which like these stories are never covered. Um, Aside uh, from on... uh, The
1: parliamentary restaurant or something. Or like quirky little
0: uh, mentions on Twitter accounts, things like that. But these are sort of some of the humorous things that go on. Is
1: that process done through order paper? Or is that a different process?
0: Yes. The questions are placed on the order paper. Okay. Um, So journalists will often... uh, Katie O'Malley did this recently. Um, Will say, like, here are all the upcoming uh, parliamentary questions. And then... They have an opportunity to revi- uh, review them, and you can get okay. them from the Library of Parliament once they're published.
1: Okay, because I'd always thought of them as as order paper questions, or the parliamentary questions, but it's the same thing.
0: Same thing. They're often called OPQs. Yeah, that's what I've always heard. E- exact okay. same thing. Cool. Um, what's sort of unfortunate about the process right now is that they're sort of a pain to get your hands on. They're not on, they're not published on the parliamentary website. You have to go through the Library of Parliament to get them. Oh, really? Okay. Unless uh, someone publishes the the hard copies of them. They're oh, not okay. they're not proactively disclosed.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and every MP gets to have, like, what, up to five, I think?
0: Yeah, I've never been on the writing end of a parliamentary question. Makes sense. But yeah, there's a limit. Um, Your question can go to every single department in government. Uh, It's going to be very broad. It can be very, very time-consuming for people. Um, There's coordination between departments to fill out, order paper questions. There are small divisions within government that are dedicated to... If you're, like,
1: a big department, like... uh, Industry, science, and economic development, or innovation, science, and economic development, which it is now. Yeah. Like you have like tons of units in there, and tons of like sub branches that have to deal with like different aspects of this question. It can actually take tons of time and resources to do this. Uh, but yeah, like it is a super useful tool for opposition to use uh, to basically get information out of the government that is like you know very very vetted, very very accurate.
0: So when basically whenever on demand when parliament's on break, um, particularly over the summer and over Christmas there's uh, dates that are scheduled tabling dates for OPQs that are pending and so a lot of order paper questions will come out in the first two weeks of January and a lot will come out in uh, late August okay um, there's like a set tabling date in mid-August and so right after these order paper questions come out like 60% of the things in the news cycle related to government yep. are driven by the results of these. Like yep. midsummer, nothing's really going on. And then if you're observant, you'll notice a flurry of news related to government spending on this program or that program or X, Y, Z, right?
1: And what actually one of my favorite order paper question related stories is uh, I think there was a, remember during the last parliament, there was a, a big tendency to decry how dumb question period is? Yeah. So question period and, and order paper questions are kind of the two ways that opposition has at getting at information that the government has. Uh, yeah. Question period is the daily asking oral questions of ministers and order paper questions is the process we just outlined. And some, some journalists basically got like, you know, in a sort of, oh, how bad, you know, what's the sort of Horatian elegy for, for times gone by, uh, went and looked for... Uh, question period responses from the 1970s when Petridero was prime minister. And he he published these, and he was like, oh, look how good they used to be. And as it turned out, they were actually all order paper question responses and questions. So the questions were highly technical, and so were the responses, but that's because they were, you know, written responses put together by departments over, like, a 60-day time frame. Uh...
0: So one of the things in order paper questions that occasionally it, it never makes the news, but it's occasionally discussed on points of order and points of privilege in or points of privilege, rather, in uh, Parliament is whether or not a minister has the capacity to write his own response to an order paper question mm. and sort his of or her, his or her. Say. Absolutely. And the standing reply to this is that they, in fact, do. Um, this has sort of been supported by parliamentary precedent. Uh this doesn't happen often um but an example of this is if a um say an mp were to ask for all the government in uh details on you know a conspiracy theory like uh tell me about the government uh involvement in 9-11 chemtrails or something. yeah like so, something like this the government could just be like the minister might take that one and try and make a political football out of it and be like this is an absolutely ridiculous assertion. The government of Canada does not have anything to do with this. The lizard people have no association with the Department <laughs> of Fisheries and Oceans. They've ha- they present the question. They have not yet infiltrated the government.
1: We have not found the sunken city of Riley where Cthulhu sleeps. it uh, is not true.
0: Yeah, so these these like happen on occasion. Um, other ones I've seen have to do with like government surveillance and stuff like that. When you ask, like, if the Department of Fisheries and Oceans is surveilling Canadians, like we're really going to yeah, and I don't know <laughs> they're, busy, they're busy guys over there that, That's an instance in which you're likely to get like A ministerial response just hammering you back And being like this is ridiculous The government or the Fisheries and Oceans Is not engaged in surveillance period yeah. like, As opposed to If you send that to your department You'll likely get back a similar response But more diplomatically worded yes. And so if you're trying to just hammer the other yeah. guy
1: The Humphrey Appleby Merry Christmas right Like The, the minute long like Basically like no <laughs>
0: yeah absolutely yeah
1: excellent finally we have some uh updates on the ndp leadership race as well uh, as we mentioned the other week peter julian announced and uh th- today actually just a couple hours ago uh we're recording this sunday evening uh charlie angus announced uh from the horseshoe tavern in toronto that he's going to be running for the ndp leadership absolutely so this is uh good news for me i'm happy i think he's a, he's a good candidate he's probably who i'm leaning towards at the moment uh, his announcement was a lot of fun to watch. Uh, that said, they need to get like better video equipment, because I literally think it was like some guy's phone.
0: He spent all the money on his suit. He, yeah. could, not, <laughs> oh, he, could, he could not afford a uh, proper camcorder. Yeah, if
1: you didn't watch the uh, the 20, 20-odd minute announcement, which was really good, actually. I think he did, he did a good job. Uh, at one point, he did come out and say, oh, I just got a new suit, by the way. It was $160, um, which... At first, I literally it took me twenty minutes to realize this. But at first, I was like, "Oh, good! What a thrifty buy! I, I can respect that because I am a super, super, super cheap person." Uh, but then, about twenty minutes later, I realized, "Oh, that was a dig at Jack Singh." Gotcha. Your okay.
0: thriftiness overrided your political sensibilities yeah, for, for a good fifteen minutes.
1: See, that's like I should I should work at the CTF. There you go. So I'm, like, yeah. Ultimately thrifty, um, but no, that was actually like a, quite clever. Honestly, I thought that that was. Very, very. For for those of you who haven't listened to past episodes or haven't been following the NDP leadership race, Jack Meadsing, who's an on Ontario MPP, seems very likely he is going to run. I, I don't know why we, we even wheel, weasel around this. He's going to run. Um, he's known uh, primarily in recent news stories for his his sort of youthful appeal and uh, sartorial brilliance. To reuse that excellent adjective, uh, he he's well known for his his very expensive suits in the style of Joe Bluth from Arrested Development. Um, five to six thousand dollar suits. Come on.
0: I can respect a man in good suits.
1: Yeah, of course you can. I can respect <laughs> a man in cheap suits. Um, <laughs> so thats that's good news. Uh, Charlie Angus kind of comes in on a sort of Bernie-ish light kind of thing. With an emphasis on, on organizing and forthright leftism. I
0: mean, where does he go from here? Next up is wearing uh, tattered garbage bags and. Oh, uh, we can only
1: hope, man. The, the uniform of socialism is, uh, <laughs> is, of course, the barrel, uh, the barrel with suspenders. Yeah, I'm
0: looking forward to the race to the bottom in the clothing department. That this. Be so uh, good. Uh,
1: yeah, that's a, a creeping socialism. I
0: bought my suit from Canadian Tire. Hell yeah! <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: going to be the the, the frontier. Of of socialism. This is
0: how we reinvigorate the NDP is through dress poorly. (laughs) Arguments for dressing. This this is really why they're surging in the polls right now. Yeah,
1: surging. Yes, it's quite a surge. Um, yeah, actually, yeah, Uh, about about the NDP's poll numbers. Um, I think, uh, you know, we, we talked about this in actually our unreleased episode zero. Uh, about Tom Mulcair's. Oh no, we're gonna we're
0: gonna have to change the numbering system all over <laughs> yeah, again. this is
1: like zero, 0. 0.5 I guess. We, we never we, we
0: recorded like an initial pilot. Wait, is this episode 7 the ninth episode now? Oh, come
1: on. Uh, but we talked about Tom Mulcair and his, uh, his refusal to, to resign in the face of his sort of dethronement from, uh, from the NDP leadership in April and whether that was a good idea or not. And I think this seems like a good place to have that discussion very briefly. Go for uh, it. Etienne, did you think that was a good idea?
0: Um, I'm fine with Tom.
1: Yeah, you're fine. See, the thing is, is most people are fine with Tom as, like, you know, in opposition slash party leader. I think the context made it so that he became more of a liability and dead weight on his party. Because, I mean, Rana Ambrose has been quite effective. She right? has. If Stephen Harper, like, lurked on and, you know, we had to be vigilant for another year... <laughs> After <laughs> Please never quote Michael <laughs> Harris.
0: <laughs> After his election defeat,
1: I mean, it would have been weird, right? Like, I, I don't
0: know. I mean, there. So I'll, he was uh, at a low
1: ebb of credibility and decided I'll, to stay on. I'll this.
0: play devil's advocate for you, or no? I'll I'll sort of agree with you a little bit. I'll give you some leeway here to say that if the NDP had a Rona Ambrose, they'd be doing better right now. I agree. Uh, Rona Ambrose has been a uh, to plug her a little bit a fantastic interim leader. I,
1: accu- I, pretend, um, like, I tend to agree with you.
0: I don't know anyone who's from any side of the political spectrum that's really been critical of yeah. uh, how Amorous has led the party during her tenure. I think the
1: major misstep has been her her billionaire yacht kind of taking away from uh, the island thing. But... That's done. We're the yeah, only no, one, no, We're the know. only ones
0: still talking about that. Yeah,
1: that's fair. Yeah, no, but she she's been really good.
0: Yeah, she general. she's been good, so in that regard Tom Mulcair has been a little bit of a I'm going to use the term dry fish. I I don't know what I mean by that. I
1: went to a a justice committee meeting over the last summer, and he was really good, as he always is, in committee and in the House. Uh, But the problem is, is he just has no credibility, and no one takes him seriously in the media anymore.
0: It doesn't seem like he does a lot. Like I think he's doing
1: the work as much as he used to. No, no,
0: he's doing the work in Parliament, but he's not doing the work outside of Parliament. Oh yeah, he's still playing the prosecutor in chief in question period. He's he's still and he's still very effective in question period. Um, But in terms of social media presence, you look at his Twitter account and it's going through a desertification phase for you know
1: anniversaries of things. Like not much more. Yeah.
0: um, Which. When contrasted with Ambrose, who's fired up, like, her Snapchat account and Instagram and is on every social media profile, or social media channel, rather, and, you know, sort of treading new ground with the party and taking them in a new direction in terms of media presence, he's not doing that. There's No. no one in the NDP doing that. No. And so the liberals have a uh, great opportunity to fill that void. And they, yeah. are, they are filling that void. They are super good. And the lackluster NDP leadership race to date, or the absent leadership yeah. race to debate, or the ader- uh, absent leadership race to date um, has not helped fill that void either. No, absolutely um, not. Because there
1: are no new ideas coming. It's, you know, no new, like, policy discussions, no new even philosophical discussions about what we want the direction of, like, the broad left and center left to be.
0: Yeah, and what I'm sort of going to be interested in um, coming as as the candidates come out and go forward is how much they disagree with each other on policy. Yeah. Um, I find it hard to believe with the candidates right now, like obviously we don't know much about their platforms, but what their major points of... Contention are going to be. Yeah. One of the biggest flashpoints, uh, interestingly, in the conservative race right now is supply management. Yeah. That is the government regu- uh, the government regulation of uh, milk, cheese, eggs, eggs, cool. uh, among other things, and that is where you've seen people yeah. piling on against Max and Bernier. It's a bit of a him. niche totemic issue. It is, but it has taken an outsized role yeah. in the conversation, and it's interesting to see the flashpoint. Another yeah. flashpoint has been Michael Chong versus the world on uh, carbon, carbon tax. Taxation, yeah. So there have been these. I have trouble believing that there will be comparable ones in the NDP leadership. Yeah, race. I'm,
1: the only thing I can really think about is pipelines, but I don't think of anybody who's sort of running or in the running to be running. As that'll a very, take a strong stance yeah, very on pipelines. Pro pipeline people. Yeah. So I don't think that'll, I mean, it'll come up, but I think it's everyone will artfully dance around it.
0: Yeah, I think people will take very tepid tones, as the NDP does, trying to balance, you know, yeah. the environmental wing with the labor wing.
1: Yeah, kind of try to have our cake and eat it on that one.
0: But if uh, Nikki Ashton pitches, you know, free university education, I think you're going to yeah, get Peter a lot Julian of... Has already done that And right he's yeah. going to be a yes, and I think everyone else will be yeses or very, very sympathetic. Yeah. Perhaps their policies won't go quite that far. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of, like dichotomous flashpoints like yeah. those two that I that I just named I don't think there will be many in the NDP leadership race which I think will make it rather anemic as it has been to date
1: yeah I don't know well I think it'll be more on strategic direction than on policy choices personally uh, that's always been sort of I think most people in the NDP kind of broadly agree on a lot of policies as much as there is like endless bickering at conventions over like you know where to place a semicolon in a resolution or something and whether that semicolon goes far enough or doesn't uh, beyond that, I think you're going to have a, a a real discussion about whether, like the sort of like leader centric traditional campaign that sort of Mulcair and even Jack Layton ran, right, where it was a party very much built around the leader, or a party built much more on the grassroots and the sort of like more organize-y Bernie Sanders model. Uh, so I think that's going to be more of a kind of point of contention in the leadership race. But I think what we'll we'll see. I think it's finally emerging. The first debate is March 12th in Ottawa. Yeah. Uh, Which I'll be going to. Uh, I don't know if you are, but... uh, I probably will, too. All right, you should RSVP. Uh, In fact, if you are in Ottawa, uh, ndp.ca slash ottawa-debate, I think, is how you do that.
0: What's the most trolling thing I can wear to an NDP leadership race? Uh,
1: I mean, I don't think you could have me beat at the Manning Conference, but uh, (laughs) I'm not sure, actually. So maybe, like, SEAL?
0: SEAL. Ooh, I wish I had a a SEAL skin jacket to wear. That would be... uh,
1: And speaking of the Manning Conference, I think that that gives us a good pivot into the the highlight of both me and Etienne's weekend.
0: Yeah, from socialism to conservatism.
1: Yeah, the the, the gamut in one sentence.
0: You spent the weekend, uh, more of it than me admittedly, undercover. Um, I I was very undercover. Very undercover.
1: I was actually wearing a socialism sucks button.
0: There you go, no one would have suspected you no. who,
1: who did you get the socialism socks button from? Are the
0: Turning Point guys Oh, I thought it was from the, uh, the Trump trolls
1: No, it's from the Turning Point Actually, Turning Point is funny Because they're a US organization that's now starting in Canada And uh, I was like, oh yeah, that's so cool Tell me about where you guys get your funding <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was, Apparently they're, they're having some meetings with donors this week So I think go. you can all imagine where that's coming from
0: The Koch brothers, the Koch brothers
1: I, wasn't, I, won't go, I won't go that far Maybe I will. It is the Pope <laughs> Brothers. No, uh, probably not. Actually, um, we have our own billionaires. So they'll do fine.
0: Probably the face of the conference, unfortunately, coming into the media. I uh, I've seen this in a couple stories so far. Has been two like trolls, and trolls is perhaps a generous way of describing them. Um, who were two like twenty-year-old kids wearing mega hats. And make America great again. Make America fans. great again hats. As well as like a Blue Lives Matter, which of course a police reference. It was like a knit sweater though. It wasn't no, like no it wasn't. It was a t-shirt. What was that? Are you sure? Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was like a sweater. No, it was just a t-shirt. I think
1: it's funnier if it's a sweater. I'm so. going to
0: show you a phone or a picture on my phone while we talk about this. Okay.
1: So anyway, these two guys, I think, I will say this for the conservative party and the conservative movement in Canada Uh, Oh, Tana is right, it is a t-shirt. Definitely Uh, a t-shirt. Most people were actually a little disgusted and kind of annoyed at these people.
0: I don't know anyone who heralded their presence.
1: Yeah, no. uh, I think
0: everyone I talked to was like, look at these idiots. I hate these idiots. Yeah,
1: they're making us all look bad.
0: They are destroying the reputation and the media coverage of this because... At any point you saw them, there was a flock of journalists yeah. just lining up to take their photos.
1: By the by, that's what it feels like to be an NDP. <laughs> <laughs> just have some nut. Just absolutely ruin everything.
0: I mean, we have our own. Remember that guy during the uh, federal election? The uh, old, old yelling guy? man? Or, oh, yes,
1: yes, of course. Yeah, for, for those of you who don't remember, it was a man who yelled at media members for being, like, lying media, and that Duffy was nothing, etc. It was good.
0: I'm going to make a quick pivot here to talk about this sort of troll... Um, especially when this troll affiliates themselves genuinely with the party and they think they're supporting them, you're not. You're costing that party or that organization tons and tons of money. Like during a leadership race, every... So I'm talking about a federal uh, election leadership race. So let's let's use Harper's campaign um, as an example. Every day, if you, if you call it a $35 million campaign and say the writ lasts 35 days, every day on that campaign, the media coverage uh, that you're trying to drive and everything equates to about a million dollars. And it's all designed to get media coverage. So if a single protester at one of these events drives the coverage in a crazy off message direction, yeah. they are sabotaging all the efforts of hundreds of people and all the campaigns across country to get any media attention, yeah. and instead it it's going to be one lunatic on TV. Yeah. And so being the lunatic at one of these conventions, such as these two individuals, everyone hates you. <laughs> everyone who's ever worked in politics and knows this and knows what you're doing to the conference hates you.
1: Yeah, as an NDPer, I have to say, if you're a conservative who feels strongly about your principles. Uh, go ahead and wear your stupid shirt and uh, go parade in front of the cameras. Uh, definitely do that. It is it is very good and very noble of you to do
0: that. Like I encourage you. It's not into the, like to the freedom of expression argument because by like by all means, but just know everyone hates you. Everyone is whispering and saying, I hate this guy. I wish he would leave. Please no one talk to him. Please hide him in a back corner <laughs> for the next 48 hours and never let him out.
1: Okay, so for the rest of the, the Manning conference. So it was kind of we had uh, the first day was uh, several panels, panel discussions, uh, and then a leader debate in the afternoon. Yes. And it, both the Tan and I were there for that. And then Saturday, it was just me uh, along with some other people, but not a Tan. Uh, and it was panel discussions, but no debate. Um, so first day, what were your impressions? Yeah.
0: So yeah, I was only there the first day. Um, I was pretty disappointed with uh, a lot of the panels. Uh, just looking at the lineup beforehand, I was more interested in a lot of the discussions going on the second day. Yeah. Um, of the panels the first day, uh, I sort of agree with Andrew Coyne's analysis of it, and he put out uh, a piece sort of being critical of the Manning Conference. That was
1: like Friday morning. For,
0: a- yeah, it's effectively the day it started. Uh, for both picking some of the wrong topics, uh, picking sort of topics of the moment rather than more substantive yeah, topics. Yeah, like long
1: review topics that are going to be important for the stereotype movement. Get yeah, for the record... The first, like, couple panels were basically about, like, Islamophobia. Uh, the, the really big ones, because there were some sideshows kind of going on, but the big one was, like, or rather on uh, the threat of radical Islam, and there was one on, like, down with the elites.
0: And Trumpism. Is yeah. Trumpism uh, in one, yeah. Canada or something along those lines. Yeah. So, like, all three of the largest panels from the first day were basically centered around, like, the short-term acute problems in yeah. American politics.
1: Yeah, basically their audience was the two guys in hats yes
0: <laughs> i mean they yeah there was a little too much focus and then within the panels themselves um there was a lot of sycophantism which is to say that a lot of people were agreeing with their co-panelists yeah and there wasn't a lot of disagreement with uh inter-panelists one of the panels i went to uh last year was fantastic um, in that the panelists it was on uh, marijuana and the direction that conservatives should take on marijuana sure. uh, reform and because this is one in which the conservatives inherently are split split on yeah there is sort of the reefer madness camp who say like keep things as is marijuana is a drug yeah and then there's sort of the libertarian side that says like no legalize it and the panelists were somewhat reflective of that uh, disparity in opinion yeah within the conservative camp there on the conservative or on the uh, populism panel there was no voice advocating for
1: The sort of burkean kind of vision of what conservatism looks like right it was really all like
0: yeah like the the free market like classical conservatism perspective yeah. on it like if you talk about brexit uh, which is what one of the panels were. Yeah, and all, I love that guy, though. Cause... And all your people are... Well, we'll get to him in just a second. But to finish this point, if all your people are the pro-Brexit people, which is effectively what this was, they are yeah. all the pro-populism. It was Doug Ford, it was a conservative organizer who was a Trump camp, and then it was the pro-Brexit guy. They're all advocating and pitching the populist side. Yeah. There is no uh, voice pushback. on the other side pushing back on yeah. that, saying like, no, here is how conservatives need to chart uh, a path forward in this world of populism, in the yeah. world of Trumpian populism and Trumpian conservatism. I hesitate to say those words together. Right, nationalism. I guess. What is the path forward for conservatives? Yeah. And so this is like uh, I think a pretty mainstream perspective. Like Harper, when he was in India, he was bashing Trump. He yeah. was saying like Trump is setting back the conservative movement. And that voice wasn't was absent from the panel. Yeah, and it's a pretty mainstream conservative voice. Yeah,
1: and like personally, like as far as populism goes, I've I've mixed feelings. I think that populism can be a force for good, but the right populism that we've seen in the last year and a couple of years has been fairly destructive. And yeah, the fact that there was no real voice pushing back on that within the panel itself, and even in the questions, mostly, was was a little disconcerting. Uh, if not ultimately, that's surprising to me. Unfortunately, I think I I have less I give them less credit than I think you do. <laughs> Uh, but that, that's, you know, that is what it is. But, yeah, the Brexit guy I thought was funny just because he was like, oh, you, you look at me, look how populist I am. And this guy had the most populist accent I've ever heard, you know, like, he for years. And, yeah, basically, like, very old Etonian kind of, yeah. That, that's that's the face of populism, guys.
0: So the leadership debate. The leadership debate was really fun. I had I, a blast. I actually had a blast, too. Yeah. I, I had to leave a tiny bit early. Um but I thought it was phenomenal. I thought just uh, content aside, I thought the format of the debate was by far the best. Oh my god, was it ever? Yeah. I thought it was watchable. It was yeah, it was very watchable. <laughs> very watchable, <laughs> Which very is a huge. Easy, step up. Very easy to listen to. You wanna explain the format?
1: Yeah, so where previously they've had like the fourteen people on a stage and everyone gets like six point three seconds to like basically state their vision for Canada. They had uh, a couple of rounds of four and a couple of rounds of three uh, participants basically broken up between the divide between the 14. They, Preston Manning drew them out of a hat or a, a bowl. A silver <laughs> a silver bowl. Yeah, it was really space age looking, but yeah, Preston Manning. Um, Taking and,
0: conservatives into the future.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then uh, he, he, it was good. Uh, and then they would get the four of them or the three of them as the case may be and discuss one topic or one sort of like umbrella topic.
0: Yeah, like one or two questions and then they were each given two uh, interventions per question. And they were able to cycle through through a bunch of different topics. Yeah. And not every candidate, so not every panel addressed every topic. Yeah. So, like, one panel of four candidates would address, say, like, climate change and, like, the future of the party or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Which I thought was a vast, vast improvement on every other one. Yeah. And I'll give an A-plus to Tom Clark, who was uh, moderating it, who's a CTV anchor. And he was fantastic. He
1: was phenomenal. I I agree. He was really, really good.
0: Like I hope his charisma uh, channeled through to the video streams, but like in person.
1: Oh, the room was loving it. Like I was having a great time. Like I was laughing and yeah,
0: people were hollering. There were some good, like good, genuine lines going down, and like the crowd was into it. It was by far the most engaging leadership debate.
1: It it was pretty fun. Uh, I was surprised at how big government some of those answers were, though. I mean, I mean, not badly. I mean, I was like, this is like, this is cool. You're pleasant, pleasantly this. surprised. But yeah, like Andrew Saxton was saying, like, oh yeah, there should be like a government like apprenticeship education program, like they have in Switzerland, and I was like, hell yeah, there should be. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great idea. My man, <laughs> basically. Um, yeah, and actually, the really in, like that was that was fun, but the really interesting round I thought was the one with uh, there with um, Kevin O'Leary. Great. Uh, Deepak? Deepak, Michael Chong, and... Oh, God, there's someone else on that round, too. Andrew Shear. Andrew Shear, thank you. And that was on uh, the sort of... It was Pipelines. It was Pipelines and Carbon Tax.
0: Yeah, that was convenient. Yeah. Uh, Because that was... Michael Chong's, of course, thing. The perfect lineup. And Michael Chong and O'Leary having that contrast, it was the, like... If I were to redo things, I would sub d out for... d was awesome, though. someone
1: else. d was awesome. I barely would have been, I think, but yeah. But no, but d was great. I hold no word against d uh, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, I think Kevin O'Leary came off like a dumb asshole in that exchange.
0: That is too fine a point. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, you, you think that's... Uh... I mean, the problem with Kevin O'Leary is that he has, to a degree, had inconsistent positions on these. That's putting it mildly. <laughs> um, so it's hard to make that argument. Um, or it's, it's hard to argue from that perspective when uh, this is one of the first instances. Where candidates were able to directly hold people to account on their previous statements, yeah, because you were able to vary directly because of there's only three other people on stage, yeah. So you're able to Question, immediately, yeah. immediately respond to the statement of a member. The
1: exchanges were quite lively because of that. It was it was much more like condensed, like people could have a lot more back and forth, which is really good. But yeah, I think like Kevin O'Leary was talking about how like if any you know province is a carbon tax, he'll take away their their transfer payments, which I thought was like hey, you can't do that
0: it doesn't freak. matter that was probably policy devised on stage <laughs> yeah, like probably
1: or in the dragon's den right? <laughs> yes. we were we were uh, situated across the hall from his like campaign headquarters at the manning center or the the conference which was like we, we just called it the dragon's den also if any o'leary staffers are listening to this if you guys ever have like a suite in the future get a smoke machine for the door Absolutely. absolutely like it would have been so good you
0: know what hype that'll create all the journalists will cover that like you just play, play up the brand absolutely. absolutely it's like the canadian uh it's like the o'leary equivalent of bringing your stakes to the to the podium to pitch beforehand you just light the place up with <laughs> like did, did a, a, a light machine and a uh yeah he did pitch it he did and, pitch it yeah. and tom clark called him out on that it. that
1: was honestly hard to watch but uh it <laughs> no, was pretty funny um <laughs> I don't think there was anything like, terribly shocking otherwise. like Kelly Leach was more or less sidelined by being on like the first one with comparatively uh, low-level leadership candidates. I think it was like Andrew Saxton and... Uh, geez, I can't even remember now who else was on there. But it, it was not... Oh, Chris Alexander. Yeah. Uh, it, it was kind of like the, the C-tier. And then the F-tier later on with uh, Stephen Blaney, uh, Pierre Lemieux, and Brad Trost. That said, though, we have to talk about Blaney. I, I know that you... it, he was so funny.
0: There were some miscommunications. He, yeah. he had uh, he had a couple of really good lines that, uh, but he didn't trans- know it. Trans- oh, it was so good. Translated poorly from French in his head to English yeah, spoken. Yeah. So at
1: one point he says, uh, it, it, "His panel was talking about the you know the future of the party and reaching out to new demographics." Um, sorry, guys, the intern is just howling back <laughs> there. Um, he was talking about the importance of reaching out to sort of new audiences for conservatives and he was talking about how like you know millennials should really be also he can't pronounce millennials but the future of the the party should be millennials because millennials are the fastest growing group of gun owners in the country so we should respect them and the room just burst out laughing and he he did not get it he was like oh I guess I've he, he, like after it died down, he was like, "Oh, I guess I've said something funny." <laughs> and he was just like,
0: "Oh my God. In in his defense here, I think the point he was trying to make. I know was what the that, point he was trying to make was. It's it's worth it's worth repeating though. <laughs> the The point he was trying to make was that as as evidence for conservatism, if you're going to take gun ownership as evidence for conservatism, that if millennials are the fastest growing group of gun yeah. owners, that there's an argument to be made that conservatives can find a niche within millennials I mean, that millennials kind of are not to be written off I,
1: I don't disagree with the the philosophical underpinnings of that response but millennials are the fastest growing re- like user of just about everything because they are people who are starting to have money and being able to buy things so I mean that's like normal like they're the fastest growing segment of like homeowners and everything else because they are, they are coming into a spot in their lives when they can buy that stuff
0: what I think you're digging at here... Uh, and well, I'm not
1: saying he's wrong no, about no, no. Like, the philosophical... <coughs> no,
0: no, 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 and I, and I agree with that. What I think you're digging at is um, talking points often have this built into them. Um, particularly government talking points Oh, sure, yeah Like, it it doesn't matter Liberal, conservative Like, literally every government ever Not Has, the one, so has done this Gospel pr- truth pr- Well, I mean <laughs> when, when In the rare instances that they form government We
1: only government. need 35 more seats <laughs>
0: <laughs> But, like, one of the talking points That literally ever, every government ever has used Is spending on X program Is the highest it's ever been
1: Yeah, oh, yeah
0: It always will be. (laughs) And it likely always will be, unless there are substantial cuts. Yeah. And that's because of inflation and population growth and like the natural growth factors. Yeah, I think
1: the population growth is actually more important than inflation there because you can inflation adjust the dollars, right? But But, population growth is. Your talking point doesn't have to discuss
0: inflation adjusted or not. So on any of these, you'll hear time and time again if you watch Question Period, like literally not a day will go by without someone saying, we spent the most on X of any government. Yeah. And the reality of that talking point uh, is you need to look at charts. Yeah, You need properly structured charts to see whether or not funding on that is stagnant or growing or X, Y, Z to actually get at the core of yeah. uh, how a program is doing. Um, there's, I'd, I'd like to talk... Uh, at length about this a little more in future episodes yeah. and have examples of how... I know how, you, you love
1: the Bradwall Cole one too, eh? Of
0: how talking points misconstrue things yeah. and how talking points that you see reiterated time and time again on social media yeah. are just wrong. Yeah, so you, you, They just misrepresent things.
1: So you guys all have that to look forward to. I, I have a couple last points I want to make about the Manning Conference. And Do we'll, it. Then we'll wrap up. Uh, first, I thought the panel on carbon pricing was actually, it was a debate actually, was actually really, really excellent. Uh, It was, uh, you know, two pro, two con. I think that the two pro guys for for carbon pricing were a former Bernard Lord and Jim Flaherty staffer, and the other guy was a former Harper Harper director of policy. Uh, And on the other side, I actually don't remember their qualifications, so you'll have to forgive me. Uh, but it was quite a good debate uh, for the most part the, the carbon pricing the case for carbon pricing was laid out quite eloquently and well and actually I thought the con side made really good points that weren't just like global warming isn't real etc right that the, the dumb points uh, so he made one of the guys made a really good point about how carbon leakage and comparative advantage would mean that if we institute a carbon price then uh, let's take the example of steel or aluminum where it you know takes two tons of carbon to make a ton of aluminum in Canada, but fourteen to make a ton of aluminum. Fourteen tons of carbon to make a ton of aluminum in China. If we have a carbon tax, then we're gonna have more emissions because China will take up the slack in manufacturing aluminum. It was a good point. So I, I thought I have to applaud the Manning Center for having When there is a frank exchange of views and of differing views, I think that's when the the conference was at its best, and I really appreciated that. I actually learned quite a bit.
0: So with that panel in particular, I I think it's worth pointing out, uh, perhaps one of the reasons why that was a uh, substantive debate is actually Preston Manning is uh, one of the few Conservatives. Um, who's come out in favor of carbon pricing. Yeah. And so he's been one of the people driving that message. Yeah. Uh, he's been in a tiff with, um, I think, Ezra Levant. That was not surprising. Has me that. Pre- Ezra Levant is in, tiff- has is in a tiff with someone. Has previously attacked him <laughs> yeah. on uh, shockingly this topic. Uh, so I think that is a case where, like, to, to speculate, perhaps he had uh, yeah. a role in picking the panel. Yeah, to be
1: honest, I have a and, lot of time and, for President And meeting.
0: balanced it well, because he's, yeah. uh, he's very much, like, say... He's very much the policy wonk, and he always was in government. Yeah. Um, so when he has a hand in policy conversations, I think they're always very, very appropriately done. Yeah.
1: He's a thoughtful man, and I think you know people can have their, their thoughts in press manning. I admire him quite a bit, actually, you know, despite
0: large differences
1: in policy. Uh, I, I think he was a, a good guy, and uh, reform was in many ways a very constructive movement uh, that fought a lot of things I didn't like about the old Conservative Party and its elitism and entrenchment and is uh, favoritism to business and everything. So I have to respect Preston Manning for that. And yeah, I had a great time at the conference. You've heard it here first. You heard it? Yeah, no.
0: Laurent Carboneau endorses Preston Manning. For I, our, um, I, I am retroactively fan. for prime minister of Canada.
1: I don't wouldn't go that far. So
0: circa 1990.
1: <laughs> 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 but he's a good man and I, and I respect him. Anything else you want to add to
0: No, I think that uh, about wraps up the Manning conference. Unfortunately, I, as you alluded to, I missed uh, the one day um, for personal reasons. Um, but, I would have loved to be there, and I look forward to it next year.
1: Yeah, and uh, we'll be, I think in all likelihood, we will be at the, Pro- the Broadbent Institute's Progress Summit in a couple of months.
0: Yeah. What do I wear? What do... Uh,
1: drum circle uh, chic, I think, is the, the, <laughs> the, the dress code there.
0: I'll have to. I'll have to go shopping for a new wardrobe. All right, and then <laughs> promptly drag it through the road a little bit to make it look oh, sort of genuine. It's, it's sort right, of yeah. like laundering money, right? Yeah. How they they put in dirt with the money to make it look used. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, or just uh, go to where Charlie Angus buys the suits. I guess.
0: Absolutely, wow. I'll have to ask him.
1: Excellent. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening this week. Uh, again, uh, once again, uh, check out our, our Twitter account at Short Pants Pod. Uh, give us a rate and review on iTunes. All all that good stuff. Uh, and that will do it for this week's Boys in Short Pants. Thanks, everyone.
0: You're here. I'm
1: sure that's the point where I sees. I don't remember for SAS
0: Gulf Islands Rising, so I'll allow her to respond. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I use the term in some degree of levity. I know it's the term the backbenchers use for those who harass them. I accept that there are then also women employed for the purpose of harassing scientists, bullying MPs, and muzzling civil servants.